means a council, and Worms is a place, so it sounds kind of gross, but uh, it's actually a council, and, and it was actually a trial that Martin Luther was summoned to, and that was to answer uh, charges about his 95 theses that he nailed to the uh, Gutenberg uh, uh, church door and other books and pamphlets that he had written. And uh, uh, his friends said, you know, you really shouldn't go to this thing. Uh, you have a really good chance of being killed if you do go. Uh, you know, John Hoos was uh, burnt at the stake just a century earlier uh, for appearing at, at a similar council, and they deemed him a, t a heretic, and they burned him at the stake. And uh, they promised John Hoos that he would have safe passage if he came. They wouldn't kill him if he came. But then after he came, they said, well, you're a heretic, and promises to heretics don't count. Uh, so Martin Luther had a very real danger that if he appeared at this council, uh, they might deem him a heretic and uh, revoke his safe passage that had been promised to him. Uh, but Luther went anyway, and Charles V was there. He was the head of the, uh, he was the Holy Roman uh, Emperor, Charles V, and he was there with his prosecutor, uh, Johann Eck, uh, and various other bishops and luminaries uh, who came to listen to Martin Luther. And, and Eck demanded that Luther recant uh, what he deemed to be his heretical writings and his books and his theses. Uh, and Luther uh, stood there before this council and said, uh, I'd like a night to pray about it, and I promise you my answer in the morning. And so the council granted his request, and the next morning Eck said to him, uh, how can you say that you are right against all the orthodox men who have ever gone before you? Uh, who gives you this illumination uh, that nobody else has ever had? I ask you again, do you repudiate your writings, and do you recant all these things uh, that you have said? And Luther, uh, standing up before this council, uh, famously replied, uh, unless I am convicted by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, but they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. Well, how did Martin Luther have the courage to stand before this council, uh, knowing that he was risking his very life by saying the things that he was saying, uh, going against his friend's advice, telling him not to go because he was at very real risk of death uh, and, and not recanting his writings. How did he get that strength and power? Well, the answer is, is that he spent the night before in prayer, and I'm sure countless nights before that in prayer, because he knew when he was writing and publishing these things that he was going to get in trouble with the higher authorities. And so he asked God to reveal his will to him, and he prayed for the strength to stand firm uh, against these men. And so what gave Luther the strength was that Luther knew God's will, and he was prepared to suffer and even die to achieve it and to stand firm against these guys. And so Paul faced the same thing as we come to Acts chapter 21. He was warned by the Holy Spirit that bonds and afflictions awaited him wherever he went. And two times in our passage, he's warned by people through the Spirit that he should not go to Jerusalem because a trouble awaits him there. But yet, in the face of that advice, Paul resolutely marched toward Jerusalem uh, into the lion's den, as it were. So now let's take a look at how Paul made that decision and then how we can make decisions that keep us in step with God's will, like Paul did. 
So the first nine verses that we have here are pretty much a travelogue of Paul getting from uh, Miletus uh, to Caesarea. Uh, and we see these in these first nine verses that really it's a continuation of last week's passage. Uh, last week, remember, he left the Ephesian elders on the beach and he, he sailed on. Uh, they were weeping and they were sad to see him go, knowing that they would never see him again. Uh, and so in verse 1, the Greek word there for parted literally means uh, to tear yourself away. And so uh, graphically describing how difficult it was for Paul to leave those Ephesian elders uh, and to travel on to the next uh, port of call. Uh, they were weeping and sad to see him go. And so they then boarded what is, was known as a coasting ship. Uh, a coasting ship is uh, able to kind of hug the sea line and, and sail from port to port, but not really seaworthy enough to get out into the deep water. And that's why they made so many frequent stops in verse 1. We see that they stopped at this uh, island called Kaz, about 40 miles south of Miletus. And then the next day they moved on to that island called Rhodes. And then the next day they moved on to this uh, little city called Patera on the mainland there uh, in the province of Lycia. And then from there, from verse 2, they found a more seagoing uh, vessel that could journey all the way uh, to Phoenicia. And we see that they would have to travel all the way across the Mediterranean Sea uh, to get there. And that was uh, about 400 miles. It would take about five days to sail across that uh, if the winds were favorable. And Tyre was kind of the main port between uh, Asia uh, and uh, Jerusalem area, uh, Palestine. So it makes sense that uh, when we look at verse 3, it says that they landed in Tyre and they unpacked that ship uh, there because that would be the place where that would be done because Tyre was the main port. Well, we don't know why they stayed in Tyre for seven days. It may be that it took that long to unload cargo and uh, perhaps load new cargo. That would make it a very large ship. Uh, or maybe Paul was just far ahead of his schedule. He was trying to get to Jerusalem by Pentecost, as you'll recall. And maybe he was ahead of schedule and he had time to kill and he had uh, the ability to wait a few days and then board a different ship. Uh, but while Paul waited, verse 4, it says that they found uh, other disciples uh, to stay with. Uh, looking up is what the text actually says. And the Greek word for looking up means that he had to find them, uh, which kind of gives the impression that he wasn't familiar with these folks, that he didn't know them. Uh, he didn't have a prior relationship with them. And, and that's really interesting because uh, these people that he doesn't know end up putting him and his companions up for seven days. Now, I want you to think about who these people entire were. Because back in Acts 11.19, uh, the text says, Then those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews alone. Now Tyre is part of Phoenicia. And so what we see here is that these people were scattered because of the very persecution that Paul began and so these believers in Tyre were there because of Paul. And now here they are 20 years later, uh, showing Paul hospitality, the very man who was responsible for scattering them there in the first place. And so that's a lesson for us uh, in Christian hospitality. 
Uh, hospitality is a very admirable Christian virtue, and we should always be seeking opportunities to help people who are on mission for Christ. And you may remember last year when we hosted the African Children's Choir, what a, an incredible blessing that was to our church body. But then uh, to the host families who uh, had the opportunity to host uh, those wonderful kids, uh, that was way more of a blessing to the host family even than it was uh, to the kids that we hosted. It was a wonderful time uh, for us to be with them. Uh, but they were Christians in need, and we had the ability to meet that need. And uh, many of us have homes that are large enough to host missionaries or people on mission for Christ uh, for a few days or a week or maybe some exchange students who might need a place to stay. And so it's important for us to think about how we can do that, uh, how we can help others who are doing the Lord's work. Uh, we are called to go, and we are called to send. And some of us don't have the ability to go, but all of us have the ability in some capacity or another to send, whether it be through hospitality or maybe giving a couple dollars, uh, whatever it is, uh, we need to consider uh, helping these folks along. These people are spreading the gospel that Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead, and they're trying to tell a world who doesn't have that message, uh, the, that great news. And so anything that we can do to help those folks on their way is something we ought to strongly consider. Well, uh, Christians doing the Lord's work will always have a need for our hospitality. And so we look now, as Paul comes to Tyre, he quickly forms a bond uh, with these men. Uh, and verse 4 says that through the Spirit, they urge, these, uh, they urge Paul not to go on through Jerusalem. And, and so it's interesting because they're told by the Spirit, urging him not to go on. But Paul had been compelled by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem uh, in both uh, Acts chapter 19, verse 21, and chapter 20, verses 12 and 13. Uh, so in Tyre, he's being urged by these people not to go. And so we have to ask, was the Holy Spirit contradicting himself when he's telling the people of Tyre uh, one thing, and is he telling the people, or telling Paul something else? Uh, I want us to, to think about that, because we're going to come back to that, because there's going to be another warning from a prophet named Agabus uh, in a few verses. But as we look in uh, verses 5 and 6, we see that Paul uh, ignored the urgings of these people who didn't want him to go on to Caesarea, and he left Tyre and continued on his quest toward Jerusalem. And the same way that he parted from these Ephesian elders uh, praying on the beach, that's how he uh, parted from these uh, people in Tyre as well. And they accompanied him to his ship. Verse 7 tells us the next verse was uh, Ptolemy, which is about 25 miles south. And after greeting those brethren, he stayed there for a day. So only a day there. And then they sailed next on to Caesarea. Now, Paul probably did have previous contact with the people in Caesarea because in Acts chapter 9, verse 30, uh, that after the Jews had plotted to kill him, his friends were sending him back home to his hometown of Tarsus. But before he got there, he stopped and spent a little bit of time uh, in Caesarea. And in Acts uh, 18.22, after leaving Ephesus at the end of his second missionary journey, he stopped at Caesarea before heading back to Antioch. And so uh, he probably had some familiarity with these believers in Caesarea. But here in Caesarea, uh, verse 8 says that he made the acquaintance of uh, Philip the evangelist. Now, this is not the Apostle Philip that we read about in the Gospels. Uh, this is one of the seven deacons who were appointed uh, to help the Hellenistic widows uh, get food and to distribute food all the way back in Acts chapter 6. 
And now he's called Philip the Evangelist, uh, probably because of the evangelistic work that he had been doing over the years, but also to distinguish him uh, from Philip the Apostle. And the last we saw of him was back in Acts chapter 8. This man had just recently baptized the Ethiopian eunuch. Remember that? He was baptizing the Ethiopian eunuch. He comes up out of the water, uh, and Philip then was snatched away. Uh, from the Ethiopian eunuch, and he found himself, Acts chapter 8 says, uh, in this town called Azotus. This is Azotus here along the west coast, uh, and it says as we continue through Acts chapter 8 that he preached the gospel all the way up until he reached Caesarea, is what it says in chapter 8 verse 40. And so that's where he made his home, and here we are now 20 years after that event or so, and Philip is still there in Caesarea. And Paul may have known him already from prior trips to Caesarea. It doesn't say. Uh, But what we do know is that Philip's uh, family had certainly increased in size over the past 20 years. He now has four unmarried daughters who were prophetesses. prophetesses. Uh, But Luke merely mentions them. He doesn't give us anything about what they prophesied about. But now Luke is going to introduce us to somebody who actually will prophesy, and his name is Agabus. So we'll look at Agabus's prophecy in verses 10 to 16. <clears throat> Verse 10 says that they stayed there for a number of days until this prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And Jerusalem is where Judea is located, so he was probably from Jerusalem. Now, this is the same Agabus uh, from back in Acts chapter 11 who prophesied that there would be a great famine uh, over the land of Judea, and that's why uh, the church in Antioch, led by Paul and Barnabas at the time, uh, collected this love offering uh, to deliver to Judea. So Paul more than likely knew Agabus, uh, and Agabus approaches Paul, and he takes his belt from him. Now, this belt is probably a long piece of cloth that wraps around his waist Uh, several times. So Agabus uh, takes this belt and somehow he managed to bind his own hands and feet with this belt, acting out what was going to happen to Paul when he went to Jerusalem. Uh, Verse 11, Agabus says, uh, this is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And so again, for the second time now, Uh, The Holy Spirit testifies, this time through Agabus, about what would happen to Paul when he went to Jerusalem. Now, this wasn't any different than anything Paul had already been told. Uh, He already said this to the Ephesian elders, exactly what was going to happen to to him. Remember Acts chapter 20, uh, he said uh, that when they went to uh, Jerusalem, when he went to Jerusalem, Acts 20 to 20, uh, Acts chapter 20, verses 22 and 23 says, I'm compelled by the Holy Spirit to go, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. And so this is what Paul was facing. And he's got this advice, uh, or this advice from the folks not to go there. And we'll look at that now. When we heard this, as well as the local residents, began begging him not to go up to Jerusalem. So his companions were very upset. We includes Luke and the people that he was with. And then the people there, that's the people of Caesarea. And they pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. But again, Paul would not be dissuaded. Verse 13 says, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And so these folks 
had nothing else to say except, well, the Lord's will be done, seeing that he would not be dissuaded. Well, I wonder about Paul's mindset at this time. Uh, when he uncovered that plot to murder him, remember, as he was going to sail to Syria back in Acts chapter 20, uh, they were going to kill him on the boat and they were going to toss his body over, sea, over into the sea. And Paul said, well, I'm not getting on that boat. I'm going to go by land. So he avoided death at that period of time. But here he's more than willing to go uh, and face death. And so uh, I think that the answer to the question is, why would he go now but not then? was because he had a mission to fulfill, and his mission was to collect that love offering and bring it down to Jerusalem. And, and if he died in Jerusalem, he would have at least have completed that mission that he had uh, to bring that love offering. And it just shows how much love and care that Paul had for the poor. We often think of him as this brilliant theologian, and certainly he was that, but he loved the people, and he was willing to die to see that that love offering made it down there to Jerusalem. But should we ask if it was right for Paul to insist on going to Jerusalem in the face of all of these warnings about what would happen to him there? Uh, a friend of mine says that we all have to use our sanctified common sense about whether uh, we should go where we think God would have us go or whether there might be another way uh, for us to accomplish God's will. Well, dare we question Paul? Uh, you know, we did question Paul back in Acts chapter 13. Remember when he and Barnabas split over this decision about whether to take John Mark uh, on the second missionary journey? That's the, that argument between Paul and Barnabas became so heated that they actually had to go their separate ways. And you might have your own opinion about whether Paul was right or whether Paul was wrong about whether or not uh, they should have taken Barnabas uh, with him. I think it's certainly debatable. Uh, Paul, of course, his letters were inspired, but he wasn't a sinless man. Uh, and I don't think that, his me that just because his letters were inspired by the Holy Spirit, that means that every action he ever took was perfect. But I want us to notice that Luke, the author of this book, never condemns Paul for what he, uh, what he decided to do here. In fact, in 23.1, uh, uh, Luke has Paul saying to the Sanhedrin, I have lived my life up to this point before God with all good conscience. And then in 23.11, God says to Paul, take courage as you have testified about me here in Jerusalem, so you must also testify about me in Rome. And so there seems to be no question that God and Paul and Luke all believe that Paul was doing the Lord's will and going to Jerusalem, even in the face of this danger. So if that's the case, what are we to make of these warnings that are coming through the Holy Spirit, through these men at Tyre, and through Agabus, instructing Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Well, I think that what was happening was that the Holy Spirit was not instructing Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Uh, instead, he was simply reinforcing what he had already told Paul was going to happen to him, that, that bonds and afflictions awaited him. And then this was not new information to Paul. Uh, Paul already knew these things, and he had made his decision that he was going to go to Jerusalem uh, no matter what. Now, notice that Agabus didn't tell Paul not to go. He was only predicting what was going to happen when he got there. It was others who then told Paul, uh, please don't go. Uh, the others said, uh, bad things are going to happen to you there. Please don't go. But that wasn't part of Agabus's prediction. And I think when we look at the people in Tyre, I think that Luke shortened that story a bit. I think probably the Holy Spirit told them that bonds and afflictions and trouble awaited Paul there. And that's divine revelation. But then I think the human reaction was them, for them to urge Paul not to go. 
And we have to distinguish between God's revelation and our reaction to it. They're not the same. You may remember back uh, when Joseph met Pharaoh and he interpreted those dreams to Pharaoh. The interpretation of those dreams, that was divine. Uh, But Joseph's advice to gather up wheat for the next uh, seven years, that was Joseph's advice about what to do in the face of the divine revelation. So we need to distinguish. Sometimes the advice is good and it's wise, like Joseph's. Sometimes the advice doesn't understand what God's will for their lives, for Paul's life, may have been, like in the case here uh, with the men of Tyre uh, and with Agabus. So I think that maybe these prophecies were a bit of of God's grace in Paul's life. Uh, God told Ananias, I will show this man how much He must suffer for my name's sake. And the Holy Spirit certainly fulfilled that prediction and gave uh, Paul a hint of what was coming. Uh, And I think maybe if I were Paul, I might not wanted to know so much about what might happen to me there. But on the other hand, at least the prophecy at this point in time wasn't death. So maybe there's a bit of grace there. Uh, But I think Luke intended it for us to admire Paul's courage uh, for going into the storm, knowing that death uh, potentially awaited him. Uh, So in the face of these warnings, uh, Paul trusted God no matter what. He was willing to die for the gospel because he knew of the surpassing value of knowing Christ. Remember in Philippians, he said, I consider everything rubbish uh, now in in, uh, contrast to the value of knowing Christ Jesus as my Lord. And so that's the value of Christ that we need to value him with as well, that we would trade everything uh, for the value of knowing Christ. You know, none of us is eager to rush into trouble. Uh, None of us really seeks suffering. Uh, But there will be many times in our lives when we come to a point of decision and we have to decide if we're going to go into the storm that it seems like God has prepared for us or if we are going to turn and run away. Uh, On September 11th, when the planes crashed into the Twin Towers, uh, you may uh, remember the footage. Everybody was running away from the buildings as fast as they possibly could, except for the first responders. The police and the fire department and the medics and even the clergy were all running to the building uh, to try and help. This is Father Michael Judge. He gave me my first communion in 1973 at St. Joseph's Church in Carlstadt, New Jersey. On 9-11, he happened to be uh, working as a chaplain for the New York Fire Department. And when the towers were struck by the first plane, Father Mike ran to the building. And he was there in the North Tower ministering to the injured and to the first responders when the North Tower came down. And Father Mike was the first confirmed casualty, the first confirmed death in the 9-11 attacks. Now, Father Mike, he didn't seek trouble, but when trouble came... He didn't run away from it. He ran right to it, even though it cost him his life. And he learned what Paul learned, to trust God when facing affliction. And they understood that God was there waiting in the storm before they even got there. And they understood that following God sometimes means suffering. God had not abandoned them. He was already there waiting for them. And so we, too, should not fear The storms that we have coming our way, God is already in that storm waiting for us. So we need to have the courage like Paul and like Father Mike to go into that storm uh, that we face, knowing that God is there in advance. Well, Paul continued on his journey. Verse 15, he planned to go on to Jerusalem. And so we'll see his arrival there. 
the, the word for got ready is a Greek word that actually means or can mean uh, to ride or to saddle up a pack animal. So perhaps for this final leg of the journey, uh, they may have ridden animals. It was still 64 miles from Caesarea to Jerusalem. And one ancient text says they actually made it in two days. So if that's true, that they made it in two days, they would have had to ride animals because they could only walk reasonably about 20 miles in a day. And they were heading there for Pentecost. So it's not surprising that they would have some people from Caesarea there heading up there with them because people would be heading up to Jerusalem whenever there was one of the big feasts. And so uh, that's why those guys went with them. And then in verse 16, they brought Paul to the home of this man named Manasin, who we would not know in the Bible at all, except for the fact that he showed hospitality to Paul. And Luke noted that this was a man of Cyprus, uh, as was Barnabas. So you may remember that uh, he's one of the early disciples. The first stop that Paul and Barnabas made on their first missionary journey was in Cyprus. So it may be that this Manasin was one of their very first converts because Barnabas was from there. And so that's where they started. So here's Paul. He's on the doorstep of Jerusalem, and the only thing left for him to do is to enter the city. And that'll be the end of the third missionary journey, and he will have completed his mission there. And from then on, the rest of the book of Acts is all about Paul's journey from Jerusalem on to Rome. And we'll start looking at that next section, that final section of the book next week. You know, I started looking at this passage. I thought, all right, here's another one of Luke's long travelogues. What am I going to preach about? It's just one thing to just follow a map around, but it's another thing to really dig in and see what is going on in this passage. And, and as I did dig in, I saw that there's a really relevant issue here uh, about how we live our lives, and that is, are we going to be obedient to God or not? And so when we, when we think about that, the answer clearly has to be when God speaks, we obey uh, no matter what, even if, if it's against the counsel of godly friends, even if it might involve suffering. Uh, Paul was convinced that the Holy Spirit had directed him to go to Jerusalem. So let's ask ourselves, uh, how can we be sure if God has spoken to us? So I want to ask these questions. I think this is a way that we can... can kind of ask, God, what is your will for me? And so the first question is this, uh, do we think that what we have been told by the Holy Spirit agrees with what we are learning from our time in the Bible and our time in prayer? Now, that's the main way that God speaks to us. Uh, he can speak to us through friends and he can speak to us through experience. Uh, that certainly happens. Uh, but I think the main way that God talks to us is in our prayer time and in our time uh, with the Bible. Uh, the Holy Spirit lives inside of us, and so he, if he's speaking to us, it should agree with what we're reading in the Bible and in our quiet time in prayer uh, to God. So uh, if those things line up, uh, there's a good chance that you are in the will of God and that you're hearing from God. And if the answer to that question is yes, I think that these things line up, then maybe as a test, you might want to ask yourself this question. Do I personally benefit from this decision? Or perhaps another way to ask that question might be, uh, am I glorified by this decision only, or does God get glory from this decision uh, as well? Uh, oftentimes, we ask God to reveal his will to us, but sometimes, if we're being honest, we're really only asking God to ratify a decision that we've already made uh, because it's to our benefit and it's something that we really want. Um, often, though, decisions that glorify God are actually the opposite of what our will might be. Moses certainly didn't want to go and confront Pharaoh. 
Jonah certainly didn't want to go tell the Ninevites to repent, but those things were going to bring glory to God. Uh, It's not a deal breaker if you personally benefit from the decision. I mean, sometimes God does give us the desires of our hearts, and sometimes the desires of our hearts glorify him. Uh, I only think it's a deal breaker if we only are glorified and God gets no glory from it. Uh, And so if that's the case, we really have to ask the question, are we sure that this is from God? Uh, You know, that's one of the things that was so hard about our decision to move from New Jersey uh, to Texas to come here and, and go to seminary. And the reason is because I wanted it so badly. Uh, I wanted to leave the practice of law with every single fiber uh, of my body. And so as I thought about that, you know, you're, am I hearing from God or am I hearing from me? Uh, that's that's the, the, the trouble that we have. And as I prayed about it, uh, I was wondering that question, and am I, am I following God or am I following my own desires? And, and those feelings became even stronger as it took almost two years for us to sell our house. And Molly was asking me, are you sure you've heard from God? And I said, well, you know, he didn't exactly appear in my living room and speak to me audibly, but I think this is what he's telling me he wants us to do. Uh, and so that made the decision all the more harder, but I kept thinking, boy, it sure is confusing trying to know God's will and trying to discern uh, your will, especially when you want the thing uh, so much. But, you know, in retrospect, I think that the suffering that we went through uh, in the decision-making process and then all that that we went through in the move and then all that we went through after the move actually confirmed that the decision was from God. And that's because when doors that had been closed opened in ways that could only be from God, uh, we could look back on this thing and we could see God's hand in everything uh, that, that we had done and, and that he had done. But sometimes you need to get on the other side of it uh, to see God's hand in the process. Uh, he never promised us that the road was going to be easy. He only tells us to follow him. And we did follow him. And it was very hard, but it's also been the best decision that we've ever made. And I pray that God has gotten glory from it as I stand up here and testify to his greatness and goodness uh, in what he did in getting us here. Well, if we are convinced that God has spoken, well then, what do we do with the advice of these well-meaning friends that we have? Um, If you're convinced that God has spoken, well, now you have a decision to make because you have friends telling you to do the opposite, maybe, of what God is telling you to do. So what do we do? Uh, Paul had this experience, right? He, he wanted to continue on. His friends were telling him, don't go. Uh, when Jesus said that he would go to, to Jerusalem and, be, uh, and suffer there and be killed, Peter said, uh, he rebuked the Lord, and, and Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. You have the things in mind of man and not of God. And so I think oftentimes people may think that God's will can't include suffering, uh, that it's not God's will that we ever suffer. Uh, and so people might think that if your calling requires some kind of suffering or may result in suffering, that it can't be from God. Uh, Well-meaning friends may not understand that it may be God's will that we actually uh, suffer for his purposes. And Paul's friends in Tyre and Caesarea didn't seem to understand that. They only wanted Paul to be safe. And that's what a good friend does, right? They want you to be safe, but they may not be speaking in accordance with God's will. 
when we told our family and friends that we were uh, thinking about moving from New Jersey to Texas to go to seminary, thankfully no one said, this can't be God's will because you might suffer. But they were definitely concerned. Uh, I think many hoped we would change our minds right up until the time when we drove away because they loved us and they knew they would miss us and they knew that it was going to be hard on us and, and they knew that we were going to suffer some. Uh, and these are very human concerns, and I would have had the same concerns if somebody said this to me. But where we have to be careful is uh, to say that something can't be God's will if there may be suffering involved. Uh, or if somebody seeks our counsel about the will of God, we can't jump to the conclusion that because there may be suffering involved, it can't be God's will. Uh, the prosperity gospel teaches that, but that's entirely unbiblical. It's not true that God wants us to be happy and healthy and wealthy uh, all the time. Sometimes to accomplish God's will, suffering is required. Uh, and there might be suffering, but there might also be infinite blessing in or after the suffering. And that's certainly our story. Paul knew that he had heard from the Holy Spirit. He knew he was acting in accordance with God's will by going to Jerusalem. Uh, but he also knew that his friends had heard from the Holy Spirit as well and that bonds and afflictions awaited him. And their human urgings to stop him from going to Jerusalem did not interfere with Paul's desire to follow God's divine call on his life. So, what hard decision do you have in front of you today? What is God calling you to do? Might it involve suffering? Might it involve difficulty, conflict, other things that you might not want? Well, I think the answer to the question is simply, when God speaks, we obey. Even if, like Paul's friends, uh, your family and friends don't understand, you go wherever God goes, you follow wherever God calls you, and may it all be for his glory. Amen? Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Paul's courage. <clears throat> we thank you for his discernment, being able to distinguish between a revelation and urgings of the people. Lord, we thank you that Paul continues to teach us in the book of Acts how we continue to follow you no matter what. No matter what lies before us, no matter what waits for us in the place that you're calling us to go, no matter what hardship we will find, Lord, we are continually told in this book of Acts that you are there already in that storm and that you have things under control, Lord, because you are a sovereign God. And we are so thankful for that, Lord, because sometimes this world feels like it's gone off the rails, and yet we have to know that you are sovereign and that you are in control of all things, Lord. We thank you for the cross by which we are saved. We thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he died for our sins and rose from the dead so that we could have eternal life, Lord. May we keep these things in mind. May we tell this good news to our friends. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.